All right. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had, he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I'm going to read a little more. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle, and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We will go that far. So, you heard about the two 737s that went down within five months of each other? The Boeing 737s, they crashed. You know, horrible, unspeakable tragedy just apparently if I understand it right there was some sensor that isn't working so now they had to ground the whole fleet and until they fix it and that's like the only slice of of good news in that whole thing it's just really sad and tragic um, a month ago today actually our family flew to Phoenix for spring break and we were really really excited because uh, this was going to be the very, very first time that our boys were going to be able to experience what it's like uh, to fly in an airplane. So we were taxiing, and it seemed like we were taxiing forever, you know, when your plane gets in the, in the line, and then they take off and take off, and you're like, why is it taking so long? Can we just get in the air already? So, but we were eagerly. So there we were. I'm in my seat, and then there's Micah and Caleb across the aisle. There's Renee and, and Samuel. We were eagerly uh, looking out the window, like excitement level was 100, 1,000. It was huge. So we were really excited. Uh, and then I glance at the seat in front of me, and there's that little card in there, you know, the one that tells you what to do if, you, if in case of an emergency, you, you, how to get out of the plane, and what to do when, when the thing drops from the ceiling. You got to put it on your face first, you know, that whole bit. Before the stewardesses and the flight attendants all tell you about it, there's that card telling you what to do. And then at the top of the card, I noticed that it says we're flying in a Boeing 737. Anyone guess where my mind went? <laughs> yeah, it went to that dark, dark place that your mind doesn't, you don't want to go to, and yet you just can't help it. 
you find yourself going there, I started thinking to myself, oh my goodness, this could be it. Like, what if this is it? And then immediately I start, I'm getting teary-eyed, that's weird. What if this is it? And then I start, immediately I start grieving for my boys. Because here they are, really excited about flying, and this could be it for them. I start grieving because they aren't going to be able to experience all the stuff that I've been able to experience because they just won't live long enough. And then I start thinking about my own life. I'm like, oh my goodness, did I do enough good? Did I, did I show love to people? Did I show grace to people? Did I live like Jesus? Did, you know, did I cross boundaries and include those who've been pushed aside and set aside? Have I done enough? Oh my goodness. Like those sorts of things. <laughs> it was one of those moments where, where you realize, oh my goodness, we live in a world that is complicated and unfair and often dangerous. I mean, we would love to believe that we're in control of things. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we are not in control. And sometimes it's hard to live in a world when, when we're not in control. I mean, think about it. Bad things happen to people we know and love all the time, and we have no control over it. Babies are born with birth defects. People get cancer. People have accidents all over the world every day, right? Some people suffer all the time because they have some sort of chronic pain. We live in a world that is unfair. It's complicated. It's often dangerous. We live in a world where women are sexually harassed and sexually abused and then feel like they can't say anything about it because they won't be believed. We live in a world where people of color are still marginalized today and often attacked. And when they speak up about it, they're told to be quiet because racism doesn't exist anymore and all lives matter. Like, those are just some of the few things. Those are just some of the sobering indications that we live in a world that is complicated. It's unfair. And it's often dangerous. And that, no, no, we aren't in control. No. I mean, think about this. We live in a world where God can become human in the person of Jesus. And he can show us exactly what God is like full of love and grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness and all the other amazing things that we can say about God because Jesus showed us exactly what God is like. We live in a world where Jesus can become a human being and show us exactly what it looks like to be a, to be a person, to live fully and passionately in this world. We live in a world where that can happen and the way that the world responds to it is by killing him. Like, not just pushing him inside and just don't, don't pay attention to that guy. He's a nut. No, we murdered him, killed him. We crucified him. Like one of the most horrible deaths you could think of, right? That's the kind of world we live in. That's why this day, Palm Sunday, is so awkward for me because I got to teach on this story. And I know where this story ends. I know where this story goes, right? He's going to die. I mean, it starts beautifully enough. There's lots of the triumph, there's triumphal entry. Like there's a big parade. It's celebrating. People are shouting at the top of their lungs and it's super amazing. But we know where this goes. We know that this is also a story that's filled with irony and it has a, a dark ending. Like it begins beautifully. So Jesus is traveling from Galilee with thousands and thousands of other people going to Jerusalem so that they can celebrate the Passover, which is celebrating Israel's 
uh, freedom from slavery from Egypt. You know the whole Red Sea parting story? That's the story we're talking about here. So what do they have on their brains? Freedom. So everybody's in a really good mood. Think 4th of July-ish. They're super excited. They got, it's patriotic. They've got freedom on their brains, and they're headed to a city that is occupied by a foreign enemy, the Roman Empire. And so you've got thousands upon thousands of people with freedom on the brain coming to an occupied city. What does that do to the Roman occupiers? They get anxious, highly anxious, because they don't want an uprising, right? So they're so anxious that the governor leaves his palace and he comes into the city to make sure that he has control of things. And then about two miles outside of the city, Jesus stopped and sent two of his disciples ahead to find a colt that no one had ever ridden. Bring it here, he said. Tell them the Lord needs it, which is the funniest part of this whole story. They do, and they're like, why are you untying it? The Lord needs it, and apparently they're fine with that. (laughs) Right? Do they know who the Lord is? I don't know. Of course, people knew what he was doing. The people he was traveling with, the thousands of people heading to Jerusalem with freedom on their minds, they know what he was doing. They understood the symbolism. He was fulfilling prophecy. He was acting out the words of the prophet Zechariah, right? Words that would have been on the hearts and in the brains of the people that day. Words like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's enacting this. He's living out these words. And the people got it. They weren't dumb. They understood it. This is it, man. The Messiah is here. Our king has come. So they stripped off their cloaks, put a few on the donkey to let Jesus ride in on, and then they spread them on the road because this is a king coming into town. They tore off palm branches and began waving them in the air, and they shouted at the top of their lungs, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, this got all the Pharisees all riled up and wound up. They're like, tell your Tell your students, your disciples to be quiet because they're thinking a dude's going to get killed for such a thing. This is the first indication that things were about to go south. And they did go south. And we know it. It's a parade. Everybody's celebrating. It's a party. But in a matter of days, Jesus is dead. He's gone. Crucified. Hanging on a cross. He's dead. But here's the thing. He knew it. He knew it. He knew what was coming the whole time. He warned his disciples about it. He told them. He predicted he was going to die. He knew how this thing was going to end. Jesus knew that his world was complicated, unfair, and often dangerous. And he knew that he would die in it and for it. But here's what I want us to notice about this story, about how he does it, about how he enters into Jerusalem, about the things that he does and the choices that he makes. I want us to notice a couple of things about Jesus. So we'll just sort of let the story speak. And then we're going to all talk about two things that we want to notice. And then we're going to talk about, well, what does that have to do with you and me? What does that have to do with followers of Jesus today? Does that sound good? Here's what I want us to notice. The first thing I want us to notice is this. 
into this complicated, unfair, and dangerous world. Jesus came to bring peace and reconciliation. That's what he was up to. And the choices he made that day, the scriptures he chose to act out, bear witness to this. He was trying to bring peace and reconciliation. Dude wasn't in for a fight. No, no, no. He wasn't in for a fight. That's like the last thing he wanted. Think about it. Jesus rode into Jerusalem with a small unarmed band of normal people. Like just regular people. Not imposing. This wasn't a a well-armed local militia that was following closely behind him with weapons ready to go or better yet going in front of him so that he doesn't have to take the shot. That's not what we're talking about. Right? He rode in on a on a not-so-imposing four-hoofed creature called a donkey. Like, you know what a donkey looks like, right? They're awkward-looking, but sure-footed animals, right? Ready for, the, ready for rough terrain. They weren't fast. They had the ability to head for the high ground, the rocky hills where, where horses would not, could not follow. Right? You see, in the tradition of Israel's kings, Jesus rode in on a donkey because donkeys are for retreating. They weren't for battle. So Jesus isn't looking for a fight. If he wanted to bring a fight to the Roman Empire, he would have jumped on a stallion, a war horse. That's what he would have rode in on, but he didn't. No, he came riding in on a donkey. And he didn't come saying, down with Rome, slaughter the infidels. That wasn't his battle cry. No, he wasn't inciting violence here. No, his only battle cry was, that, was only something like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was his battle cry. Or even more profoundly, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who says these sorts of things? He was going for peace and reconciliation. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He even took that battle cry all the way to the cross when eventually he did die. Do you know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So he actually, while he was dying, was praying for his enemies and loving. He didn't come for a fight. No. In this complicated, unfair, often dangerous world, he came for peace. And reconciliation, he was offering a different way of life, a different way of living, a different way of being human in this world. That's the first thing I want us to notice. We'll talk about another one, and then what does this have to do with us? Here's the second thing. In this complicated, unfair, and dangerous world, Jesus showed intense determination, like an unswerving intentionality in pursuing the Father's call in his life. Like, this was intense determination. Jesus rode into Jerusalem knowing that this was going to be dangerous. He knew it. He knew that the cross was ahead, and the only way for him to avoid danger, the only way for him to avoid the risk, the only way for him to avoid the cross was to just stay home in in Galilee. Don't do it, dude. Don't go. His disciples Read the story. His disciples don't go. They don't want him to go to Jerusalem because they know that this is a dangerous thing. They were afraid for Jesus' life, and they were afraid for their very own 
lives. They knew that this was going to be... Even the Pharisees were like, dude, you got to tell these people to be quiet because they knew that this was the sort of thing that could get a guy killed. Right? So they say to him, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus says to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones, the stones will cry out. In other words, <laughs> we're well beyond that, man. This ball is rolling and it ain't stopping. We cannot stop it. All of creation has been waiting for this moment. And every step that Jesus took from this moment on was just another yes to the Father's call on his life. Every step, another yes in the face of like the worst opposition. The only thing that mattered to him was glorifying God by living fully and passionately. In this complicated, unfair, often dangerous world, Jesus showed intense determination, an unswerving intentionality in pursuing the Father's call on his life. Okay, so those are the two things that we notice. Right? So he's about, he came to bring peace and reconciliation. He wasn't looking for a fight. Right? Although he knew it would come. He wasn't looking for a fight. And he had this unswerving intentionality to pursue God's call in his life. So what does this mean for us on Palm Sunday? As followers of Jesus, what kind of an impact does this have? What's the reality today for us? Here's what I think. I think if we live as fully and passionately as Jesus did while he walked on this earth, I think we'll feel like odd ducks. I think we'll feel like fish out of water. How many cliches can we throw at this? Like we're walking to the beat of a different drum. <laughs> Any more? Help me out here. No, we'll stop there. Yeah, well, we live in a world that lives by the sword and dies by the sword. That's the world we live in. We live in a tit-for-tat, eye-for-an-eye, reap-what-you-sow kind of a universe where aggression, revenge, violence blaming are seen almost every day all around us. Even from the people who lead us. Anybody watch the news this morning? I'm watching people being interviewed, political people, and I'm like, stop it! It's infuriating. Almost embarrassing. But that's the kind of universe that we live in. But while Jesus walked on this earth, he lived fully in it. He seemed to be in a different kind of a zone. A zone of of peace and reconciliation, a zone where, where beautiful songs are sung with lyrics like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we're following Jesus, we'll almost feel like, I don't know if I belong here anymore. Like we'll feel odd in this world, like fish out of water. Another follower of Jesus named Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, talked about this zone when he was writing to his friends in a church in Philippi, basically describing the way Jesus lived and said, hey, you people who follow Jesus, live like Jesus did. Do it like this. He said, have the same mind in you. The same attitude should be in you as that of Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we really lived like that every day of our lives, fish out of water. Fish out of water. Because that's not exactly the kind of zone 
that fits well into our highly competitive climb over others just to get to the top kind of a world. We all know that that's the kind of world that invades our, our businesses, our educational systems, our politics, our military, the whole thing. Let's face it. The Jesus zone, living in that zone, doesn't get us very far in this world because it won't get us the kind of jobs that give us the kind of paychecks that we'd all love to have, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Think of others as better than yourselves. <laughs> Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a whole different zone. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it also means that we pay attention to our cultural moment. That's what I, that's what I think it means. Let's pay attention and be serious about the times in which we live. Let's pay attention to our cultural moment. That's what Jesus was doing. He was paying attention to his cultural moment. This parade into Jerusalem was a political demonstration. So you want to separate politics and religion? Sorry, Jesus didn't. Nope. This was a political demonstration. This was a march on Washington. This was a protest. Jesus was protesting Roman occupation. Did it, doing it in a peaceful, beautiful way, but make no mistake about it, this was a protest. He was protesting Roman occupation. He was protesting empire. He was protesting the op, the the. He was protesting the marginalization and oppression of people. That's what he was protesting. And then the story right after this, you know what he did? If you read on, he goes to the temple. And he stages a demonstration there, the religious center. Because he turns over tables because the people in the religious institutions had turned that into a thing of oppression as well. So these, these were demonstrations, right? He was paying attention to his cultural moment. I think we pay attention to our cultural moment. Oh, now this just got interesting. So what's going on? Are we paying attention? And are we working for peace and reconciliation? Is that what we're doing? Are we paying attention to our cultural moment? Working for peace and reconciliation, knowing that it's going to take intense determination because opposition will be absolutely dangerous and frightening. What's our cultural moment? What is it? Have you heard of the Me Too movement? Have you heard of this thing? Yeah. How do we respond to that? I think... This is my thoughts. I think we respond to that... When women speak up about sexual harassment, or worse, sexual abuse, I think we respond with our mouths shut and our ears open. And when they're done speaking and we're done listening, we believe and validate their experience. And then we ask, how do we make things right? We stand with you. What are the kinds of things that we need to fight for? Have you heard of this thing called Black Lives Matter? 
Anyone? Yeah. How do we respond to that? How do we do this? What do we do now? I think that when people of color speak up about how they're still being marginalized and worse, attacked, I think we shut our mouths and we open our ears. We let them speak. We listen. And when they're done speaking, we're done listening. We believe them and we validate their experience. And then we ask, what can we do to make things right? What can we do? We stand with you. What are the kinds of things that, will, that we can help you fight for? And then we do it. I think we pay attention to our cultural moment. What else is there? Huh, this could be a long conversation, right? Hey, got anything else going on? Like this could take, take forever, our cultural moment. But look, it takes an intense determination to live in the Jesus zone, working for peace, working for, for reconciliation. It takes, it takes intense intentionality. It takes the kind of intentionality that Jesus showed in the face of danger just to follow what God wants us to do. And often we're going to feel like, oh my goodness, do I belong here anymore? So Rosa Parks, anybody ever heard of Rosa? Yes. Like, you know her story. In 1955, she refused to give up her seat on the bus, and then she faced consequences. She was arrested and all that. Listen to what she wrote in her book, Quiet Strength. She wrote this. When I sat down on that bus that day, I had no idea history was being made. I was only thinking of getting home. But I had made up my mind, after so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment of my people suffered, not giving up my seat and whatever I had to face afterward just wasn't important. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. So I refused to move. People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically, or no more tired than I am usually at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. She was tired of giving in to the kind of pressure the world put on her every day of her life. She was tired of swimming in the world's pond of oppression, violence, and re revenge. So what did she do? She dug deep. She found the determination to live life like Jesus lived. What are you tired of? Is there anything you're tired of? Are you tired of some stuff? Like, we don't need that in this world anymore. Are you tired of something? How do we respond? What do we do as we work towards peace and reconciliation? going to take that intense determination. But what is it for you? So as we enter into Holy Week, how about we just give that stuff some thought, see where it leads you, and maybe each of us can some, in some small way, you know, live into that for a little bit. Let's pray together. God, thank you for, 
for your word. Thank you for this, this story. Thank you for uh, the way it speaks to us. Um, and God, we just ask that you would help us to pay attention to our cultural moment. Help us to pay attention to the world around us. Help us to, uh, to work for peace and reconciliation. Help us to, um, to, to protest in the right way. Right? Help us to, help us to be uh, for people and not against people. Help us to work to end things that marginalize people and oppress people and push people to the, to the outside. Help us to, help us to be loving, gracious people. Not only as individuals and families, but as a church. Help us to figure out a way to do that as a people here in the city of Ames. Thank you for, for your presence. Again, God, change us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.